From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. I would also like to thank our podcast sponsor, Guarantee Commercial Title. Guarantee offers a new platform for the delivery of services based on the expertise and ingenuity of a visionary team of title professionals that identifies obstacles and creates solutions that result in a successful sale, construction, or financing of commercial real estate. To learn more, visit GuaranteeTitle.net. In this special episode, I speak with historian, former financial services executive, and best-selling author Zachary Carabell about his latest book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. As business and politicians consider the future of capitalism and its role in democracy, there's arguably no firm that has had a greater impact on American society than Brown Brothers Harriman. The company has weathered wars, banking panics, and stock market crashes by following Alexander Brown's advice to his sons, including avoid unnecessary risks, don't trade with unvetted partners, and be known as someone whom others could trust. The legendary yet virtually unknown investment banking company preached stakeholder capitalism, whether they knew it or not, before it was a buzzword by investing their own money with their clients and preaching the idea of, quote, enough. Throughout the 19th century, the partners helped create paper money as the primary medium of American capitalism, underwrote the first major railroad, and almost unilaterally created the first foreign exchange system. More troubling, they were the central player in the cotton trade, and by association, the system of slave labor that prevailed in the South until the Civil War. That history alone makes Inside Money a compelling read. Brown Brothers was at the center of the American financial elite, educated at Ivy League colleges and Northeast boarding schools, that eventually morphed into what was referred to, not without ambivalence, as the, quote, establishment. A coterie of the firm's partners, Robert Levitt, Avril Harriman, and Prescott Bush, father and grandfather of the two Bush presidents, revolved between Washington and Wall Street and oversaw an almost seamless merger between business and government that was part of the formula of the American century. They believed that they had a responsibility to put aside their parochial self-interest to serve the greater good, that the United States was bound to lead the world, and that they and their country would prosper together. The company instilled values that have come back in style, including stakeholder capitalism and trust and relationships over profit. BBH executives also preached service to the country and the greater public, something missing from today's Wall Street and Silicon Valley titans. In exploring the role of one family and one firm, Carabelle has given us the story of American wealth and power, with important lessons for better or for worse for those who created and held it. I'm pleased to be joined today with author Zachary Carabelle. Zachary was educated at Columbia, Oxford, and Harvard, where he received his PhD. He's a prolific, prolific commentator, both in print and on television. 
and the author of a dozen previous books. Um, he's also a longtime investor, former financial services executive, and the founder of the Progress Network. Um, we're here to talk about his latest book, Inside Money, <laughs> Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Life. So thank you so much for joining me on our podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Um, like I said, we could talk about this book chapter by chapter. I really enjoyed the book. Um, and like I said, too, I have my dog-eared copy here right in front of me. Um, it's just, it's a great book. I don't mean that to sound like empty flattery, but I learned so much. It's more than a specific biography of a firm. It's just Brown Brothers is kind of the history of finance and our country. Um, it's about money and power. I'll just ask an open-ended question to start us off. What first got you interested in Brown Brothers and this book? And maybe just give a summary of what the book is about. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it was definitely more motivated by the what you just said, the idea <laughs> of money and power and how that was woven through American history than it was initially, like, I want to write a book about Brown Brothers, which doesn't mean I didn't want to write a book about Brown Brothers. It just meant that the way I got into the story of this particular firm was wanting to tell this larger story of the, the crucial role of money in the rise of America, both in the 19th century to continental power and then in the 20th century to global power. And as much as we, as a society, are perhaps overly focused on money, um, the way in which we've written the story of our past actually doesn't give nearly the centrality to the role of money. Uh, I'm not sure why that is. I think partly it's it's hard to grapple with and unless you're really into the weeds of like the financial system and the invention of credit, which very few people are. I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners and there's an audience for that, right? But it's not the kind of the popular audience. It's not the textbook version of American history that we learn in school. Um, and maybe because money, money as a thing isn't that dramatic, right? Wars are dramatic and death is dramatic and who, presidential elections are dramatic, but like printing paper money or what's the value of a promissory note? Like, you know, it's important, but it's hard to write about. So I wanted to look at how money kind of fueled the growth of America and particularly paper promises, the, pr the promiscuous proliferation of paper money in the 19th century and, and how did that system work? And, and then how did the people who made the money of the 19th century then create the global economic system of the 20th century. And, and a lot of those people came out of the financial world. And there's really no better way to tell that story than through the lens of Brown Brothers, which eventually becomes Brown Brothers Harriman in 1929, because they really are the oldest extant financial institution in the United States that still exists. Um, I'm not sure it matters hugely that they still exist for the purposes of that story. Although the end of the book does offer kind of a meditation about how we've come to define capitalism versus how a private partnership like Brown Brothers defined capitalism. Um, but they've been around in one form or another since 1800, and they remain a privately held firm with a very similar identity. Uh, and in many ways, the sustainability of Brown Brothers, I think, tells us something about a sustainable model of capitalism, which is which is rather different than the shareholder, you know, the only purpose of a of an entity is to make money for its shareholders. That's our contemporary definition, although that's, as you know, being challenged widely. Mm -hmm. um, but in an odd way, Brown Brothers, which was the font of 
paper money, trade, capitalism, cotton trade, growth of the railroad, you know, all of it, yeah. um, wouldn't have bought into that definition and, and don't now. And I think that's also kind of instructive. They were there kind of, that's what surprised me too. I mean, you know a little bit about Brown Brothers, but I don't know, it's not something you think about, but it just seemed like they were there at the start of so many things, uh, you know. I mean, maybe you can talk about that, how they got their start. I mean, they started kind of coincided with the rise of cotton. Yep. And then you mentioned railroads and everything else. Yeah, so, take... I mean, you're, Brown Brothers is like a firm that people vaguely are aware of, probably don't even realize it still exists and, and are often treated as sort of a, oh, wasn't that a great, you know, how sad they faded kind of thing um, because they never got huge and they never got systemically so big to fail and they didn't want to want to right that, that was not their goal but they are present at the creation of each kind of crucial moment of american history financial and otherwise uh always in the background right they don't they, they didn't want to be the story so they weren't the story they weren't populated by men and they're all men right this is a history of dead white men and yeah. um they didn't want to be the story they were not that wasn't their culture that wasn't their individual family ethos uh they weren't the ones like e.h harriman who eventually the brown brothers firm founded by alexander brown in 1800 merges with the kind of the nouveau railroad fortune of april harriman in 1929 as they kind of both clasp onto each other to make sure they survive the financial crisis that becomes known as the great depression um you know harriman april uh, april's father e.h was a railroad baron he adamantly wanted his name to be imprinted on history right like yeah. kind yeah. of that line from the hamilton play everybody knows my name right he wanted to be the guy that everybody knows his name yeah. alexander brown and his sons and their sons and their sons and the partners they didn't want everyone to know their name and they didn't care about it and they they would have found it a little bit gauche you know like yeah. really no that's not our thing but they're there and and without them there's no story right they don't want to be the story and without them there's no story yeah alexander brown flees belfast in 1800 he's a cotton he's a irish linen merchant exporter and he goes to baltimore to flee the troubles of northern ireland i mean there was no northern ireland then but he was in belfast mm -hmm. and um he becomes an irish linen exporter from baltimore sorry importer from baltimore he had been an exporter in belfast uh but then that business quickly morphs into a much more variegated trading empire which by the 1820s becomes primarily a cotton trading empire. They trade other stuff too. Uh, he dispatches his four sons, which is totally typical of merchant families, the Rothschilds, the Warburgs, the Barings, you know, they're all family firms because in a world without really central banks and there was the Bank of England, but they, they weren't central banks the way we think of now. Uh, trust in intermediaries was pretty vital. And if you're gonna ship goods across a wide distance, the thing you always want to know from time immemorial is if I send stuff, if I'm a, if I'm a seller, right. And I send stuff across the ocean, how do I know I'm going to get paid? And the challenge on the other side of the equation was if I buy stuff from across the ocean, how do I know I'm going to get my stuff? Yeah. And so you need these merchant families, which was true in, you know, the Mediterranean in the second century AD it's true in the 21st century, but uh, traditionally it was merchant families because one of the only ways you could trust people could steal stuff and leave, but family members were likely to, blood was likely to be thick. <laughs> and so family trading firms were normal and this was normal. So he sends his sons to various nodes. 
they become incredibly important in Liverpool, and then they become a dominant player in the in the transatlantic cotton trade as a financer more than as a physical purveyor. Because Alexander Brown, the mantra of the family was avoid risk at all costs. And there's nothing riskier than putting all your assets on a ship and going across the ocean. Yeah. I mean, not a lot of ships sunk, but ships sunk, financial crises happened. You just never knew. And it was better to, and one way you could diversify was underwriting the trade of others with paper promises rather than yourself taking physical possession. So they, they go from being a physical cotton merchant to basically the financer of 15% of the US cotton trade by the 1830s, which meant they were complicit in slavery, which meant they were profiting from a system that relied on the labor of enslaved men and women, um, which they morally disliked, but not enough to you know, stop being cotton traders. It took a firm like Brown Brothers, though, to have that reputation to be able to kind of you know, build those financial tools and to have that trust and to, you know, allow people to, to start to have that and for them to develop that, that it is interesting that that, you know, notes by Brown brothers are more than just words on paper, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was a period of time in the 19th century where a letter of credit from Brown brothers was treated as more reliable than any currency printed by most countries other than perhaps the British pound and were used as currency in a time when paper money was questionable in its value. And there wasn't enough gold and silver coins to facilitate transactions. You needed paper, but paper was unreliable. And into that kind of chaotic mix comes Brown Brothers providing these letters that were treated as reliable because they were. You knew that if you had a Brown Brothers letter of credit, it, it would be redeemed for either goods or coin um, and therefore was worth something. You know, It was worth more than the paper it was written on. Uh, and they really built an empire from that. Yeah, you're right that kind of then into the 1850s, then kind of went into this world of finance, then that uh, unequal rewards, you know, went to those. Um, and it started to get people to talk about it in different ways, too. And, um, you know, there's the quote you include by Henry Ward Beecher, you know, uh, you know confidence within Brown Brothers. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, too. Yeah, I mean, their, their one brush with fame, which may also have led them to shun the spotlight, yeah. was used for about 10 years by Henry Ward Beecher, who was the celebrity preacher of his day. I mean, people would ferry across from Manhattan to Brooklyn. I mean, I live in Manhattan now, and Brooklyn still seems far away, but then, you, had, <laughs> you know, it was a real schlep. And to listen to his sermons, you know, he was a he was a big deal. And he constantly uses Brown Brothers as a kind of example, A, of a society that's lost its way um, in materialism and that people trusted more in Brown Brothers paper than they did in the word of God. And that this was a sign of a civilization that was, you know, following mammon and not God. What's bizarre about that, of course, is that Brown Brothers was way less speculative and avaricious than, than many people at the time. It's just because they had survived and because they were thriving, they became a good foil for Beecher, even though they lacked the kind of real avaricious race to the bottom of a lot of speculators during a lot of crises. So they were convenient, but they probably weren't actually a great example of the thing that Beecher was railing against. Nonetheless, you know, that that's what he used because they were there and they were known and they were trusted. Uh, and he was trying to draw the contrast between 
other values and money. You know, one of the themes in the book is this constant tension in American history between the people who make money, the people who spend money and the attitudes of kind of farm and labor and the coastal elites who are making money is in, in constant tension. Yeah. Um, and it is today, right? I mean, part of the populist reaction against wealth and richness is, is, is a continuation of a multi-century ebb and flow between lionizing those who have made money and then demonizing them. And, you know, that's true in the tech world today, right? 15 yeah. years ago, Apple, you know, Steve Jobs and Zuckerberg and Bezos were treated as the heroes of their age. And today they're the villains. You know, 1912, 1911, sorry, in 1907, JP, you know, JP Morgan almost single-handedly, and Brown Brothers was part of this consortium, helps bail out the U.S. financial system because there's no Federal Reserve. Hmm. Five years later, he's hauled up in front of the Congressional Committee, the Peugeot Committee, as 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 representative of and leader of this secret cabal of a money trust and treated as the villain in the story. Um, so there's a, there's a class, and, and in many ways, Brown Brothers, maybe because the Beecher stuff in the 1850s, figured out very early uh, that if you want to survive over generations, it is probably better not to be seen as exhibit A. Yeah. It's kind of better to be exhibit G <laughs> or L, I, right? Yeah. And like, like keep your head down. Yeah. Do your business, make your money, <laughs> pick your clients, do yeah. your thing. Um, but don't be the one front and center. Yeah. Because you are likely to be at the eye, you know, you're likely to be the, at the eye of the storm as a hero at one moment and then the, the target the next. And if you look at the past 200 years, that's an entirely correct reading of how things work. Yeah, we'll get into that. But there is that modesty that they have, too. And there's kind of this code that, like you said, they don't it's not about being the person being front and center, but it's more about doing the good work and kind of keeping out of the limelight, I suppose. And I know we're jumping ahead a little bit in the story, but there is that kind of thought that kind of runs throughout the entire book about how they view how how they view business, I guess. But yeah. I wonder if um, I wonder if you could talk about the Civil War and also some of the things that came out of that. You know, the National Banking Act, um, you know, sponsored by Senator Sherman and um, there's a lot that you can talk about, I'm sure, in just that time period. But the, it, you know, the Sherman Antitrust Act as well, a lot, a lot changed then, and then they were involved in a lot of what was going on, I suppose, too. Right. So, uh, you know, the Civil War really leads to the birth of the modern American financial system, and that probably is not the thing most people think about in the Civil War again, because it's not as dramatic. You know, creating greenbacks and a National mm -hmm. Banking Act and even the Homestead Act, which I think we probably pay a little more attention to in 1862, mm -hmm. which kind of facilitated the growth of the railroads by granting land on either side of the rails. And and Brown Brothers uh, kind of stays on the sideline of the railroad boom of the 1870s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s, <clears throat> even though they had been really created the first passenger railroad anywhere in the world, the, the Baltimore and Ohio, the B&O, which they fund in 1828. And they do that because uh, Alexander Brown had become one of the leading citizens of Baltimore. Baltimore is falling behind economically. New York, which had opened up the Erie Canal, falling behind Philadelphia. 
and and they felt like the only way they were going to stay competitive is by having a an, an easy trade route to the Ohio River Valley, which was you know the locus of American growth. So they helped pay for this totally untested technology, a steam powered locomotive that carries passengers and freight. Um, they underwrite it, you know, there's not a lot of government support and they do it not to make a lot of money and they don't make money. They do it because it's a public works and because they believe in uh, the mantra of the public good is intimately intertwined with private gain, that their private gain would never be fully served unless the public good was fully served. So it's kind of a self-serving selflessness, right? An ethos of public service driven by self-interest and a belief in the, that their sustainability demands that the community in which they're embedded thrives. And by the 1860s and 1870s, where you have a somewhat more paper money stability, although not really, I mean, that it, the, the national banking helps create kind of the, the echo of what eventually becomes the Federal Reserve. But the United States really doesn't have a centralized system with any coherence until 1913. It does, however, have federally printed dollars and paper, which um, was supposed to create some order and was really only designed during the war so that the federal government could actually pay for the war. Not unusual. Governments usually can't pay for big wars. They usually, that's when they tend to take on debt. Um, but even then, Brown Brothers paper remained reliable in a way that the federal government's paper remained questionable. Um, and during the latter part of the 19th century, Brown Brothers kind of quietly makes a lot of money. They're run by a grandson of, of Alexander Brown named John James Crosby, John Crosby Brown, who really does uh, innovative work with the firm and its systems in a way that is interesting in the financial world, but not dramatic, right? They're not doing the Transcontinental Railroad. And they're not involved in the railroad boom in part because most of the people who made money during the Great Railroad boom were not the companies and individuals who built the railroads. Almost all of them go bankrupt. The ones who make money, the JP Morgans, um, even to some degree Huntington and Stanford, even though they 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 built a lot of the Pacific Rails, and certainly someone like E.H. Harriman, are the ones who buy the bonds at pennies on the dollar after the initial companies and people who built the railroads um, go bankrupt. A little like what happened in the 90s with, with um, telecom, you know, heavy capital intensive innovations. The first wave usually loses people money and then it's the second wave that makes the money. And so Brown Brothers kind of stayed out of that first wave um, because it was just too speculative for their taste. And um, but then they emerge at the beginning of the 20th century in a much more potent position than almost anybody else. They're just kind of quiet about it. Back to what I said. And then that and then, you know, the book talks about the coalescing of a self-conscious financial Northeast elite that eventually becomes what we call the establishment, you know, this group of kind of wasp men who go to the same set of schools and intermarry, they go to Groton, they go to Yale yeah. by the early 1920s, you know, all the partners of Brown brothers are Yale graduates and most of them were in skull and bones, <laughs> which then of course leads to this belief in a financial elite, a cabal yeah. that kind of controls both wall street and Washington. Um, because for a period of time, it was the same group that was, in fact, designing policy and that in yeah, many yeah. ways becomes really prominent after World War II. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about, too. There are a lot of names that show up in this book, too. Obviously, the Harrimans, you know, but there's also Bush, Prescott Bush. The Bushes show up, too. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. You just started to, but there is this um, 
start of the quote unquote establishment. And like you said, they all kind of went to Yale and they all um, come from different, you know, similar families, that kind of a thing. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, <clears throat> this coalescing of the self-conscious elite was really 1880s, 1890s, you know, Groton opens. There have been some schools around before then. Um, I mean, I use Groton as have other people as a kind of perfect exemplar of a new ethos, right? Their motto was to, to reign is to serve. Um, they, they, they drilled into the children of this emergent elite class, the notion that with great power comes great responsibilities, you know, that eventually becomes the Spider-Man creed. <laughs> you know, the reason why it does is it comes out of that world of elite service. Mm -hmm. Um, and in partly it's a way of governing the elite, right? That, that if you allow for unfettered greed and unfettered power, um, you, you will, the bonds of society will begin to fray and that the elite need to have a sense that their position and privilege is contingent on a stable society that they're giving back to again, self-interested selflessness. Yeah. Um, which is literally drilled into them in drills <laughs> at Groton. And then Yale too was much more, and all the, you know, all the Ivies in those years were much more about status than they were about education. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was status within status. So the senior or secret societies at Yale were like the select of the select. Uh, but those bonds then continue for years afterwards and, and these groups intermarry. And one of the reasons that Brown brothers then can, combines with Harriman in 1929 is because they were all at Yale together. Um, and, and, you know, one of the people is Prescott Bush, who later becomes a senator from Connecticut and then a father of one president and the grandfather of another. His fortune comes out of being a Brown Brothers partner after the merger, but before that, going to work for his father-in-law, who was George Herbert Walker, mm -hmm. which is where you get George Herbert Walker Bush, daughter <laughs> Dorothy Walker. Mm -hmm. He had worked for Averill Harriman and his father had run the Union Pacific Railroad. I mean, you get this literally, it is an intermarriage mm -hmm. self-propagating class that led a lot of people in the 60s and 70s to go, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. No one invited me to this party. And this group of elites has just led us into Vietnam and they're getting rich and we're getting screwed. Um, and they're all, you know, behind their little secret handshakes. And, and there's a lot of truth in that. You know, that was an exclusive world. The Brown Brothers community of service was exclusive and exclusionary. You know, you and I would probably not have had a seat at that table, no matter what we did and no matter how well we did. Yeah. Um, but they did have an ethos of public service and they helped construct an economy and a, and a capitalism that was weirdly more egalitarian in its hierarchical exclusiveness than our contemporary version of capitalism, which is theoretically much more inclusive and open, right? The average pay differential in 1950 between a CEO and a worker was about 30 to one. It's close to 300 to one today. Now, I don't have a good explanation for why a, a group of highly hierarchical exclusionary white guys created a more <laughs> inclusive capitalism that spoke to more needs than our supposedly egalitarian open capitalism today has created a much more unequal one. Uh, but the facts are the facts and, and, and the reality is the reality. And I do think, you know, these partners over generations, the idea that the only purpose of their partnership would have been to benefit them 
and yeah, enrich yeah. the partners and the family would have been an alien and weird and somewhat uh, offensive idea. Yeah. Their definition of the purpose of a firm was a firm that serves the interests of the partners, uh, the well-being of its employees, and the thriving of a community and, and, the, and the greater society. That's the theme that I got throughout the book. I mean, you know, you talk about the Great Depression and there's some people who, um, the backlash and they feel like, oh, it's because of speculation. It, it moves, you know, even in through the 60s, the backlash against the quote establishment, but they always had this feeling like that you said, kind of the Spider-Man theme, you know, <laughs> with great power comes responsibility. And and they had this idea, like you said, it, was, it would be anathema to them to just have a, company just to line their own pockets but they felt they were doing a, a service you write too that the quote more about the establishment is later on you know some of these same figures make that switch between government and the firm uh too they, they serve in government positions as well obviously later on that with the bushes you know that becomes that idea of public service and, and government takes hold. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how later on some of these figures that even Harriman and others jump into government service as well. Yeah, I mean, part of its contingency, right? It's, uh, they served in World War One, and one of the partners was Robert Lovett, who's almost forgotten now, but was a major figure mid-century, eventually becomes Assistant Secretary of War in 1940 under Henry Stimson and almost single-handedly as the architect of the modern Air Force, um, because he had been um, one of the early airmen in, in the nascent years of World War I when, when air power was first used during war. Remember, it, there were no airplanes before Kitty Hawk and, and the Wright brothers, so World War I was the first kind of test of air power. And it was a pretty poor test. You know, most of the planes were shot down, and all they could do is like fly a few hundred feet over and like drop a few bombs. Um, but Lovett was an early airman. There was a whole Yale air unit, which uh, was mostly rich kids who wanted to fly. Although one of them did die in service. I mean, I'm not, I'm not belittling it. I'm just saying that's what they mm -hmm. were. Um, and so he goes in the government because uh, they're worried about the preparedness of the United States, even though they're not in the war in 1940, but they have no preparedness and Germany's building all these planes and and then he eventually rises to become George Marshall's number two uh, when Marshall becomes Secretary of State under Truman in 47, and then when Marshall becomes Secretary of Defense in 1950. And then Mar Lovett himself becomes Secretary of Defense for the last years of the Korean War and oversees the hydrogen bomb and all that. So uh, Lovett, you know, goes in because of World War II. A Harriman, Averill Harriman, who was the, the, the leading partner in terms of wealth, um, actually is the one who's more demo more in favor of the Democratic Party. You know, he's Harriman's are from New York. Franklin Roosevelt's from New York. E.H. Harriman and Teddy Roosevelt had had a really sort of complicated and ultimately antagonistic relationship. But the families had been dancing around each other for decades. So there was some affinity when FDR becomes president. Harriman asked to go into government. Harriman's drives are, I guess, more complicated. He's probably the one who was indeed ambitious for being an important person. Um, but he goes in to government first in the 1930s at very kind of junior roles in different F uh, New Deal administrations. And then eventually sort of becomes this roving uh, 
problem solver for FDR and he becomes ambassador to Moscow. He becomes secretary of commerce. He becomes the administrator of all Marshall Plan aid under Truman uh, and then all American aid to Europe, which was a pivotal. I mean, it's hard to explain how central that role was after World War II, the rebuilding of Europe and American aid to rebuild it. And, and Harriman really was was central to that, much the way Hoover was central to, you know, feeding the entire war effort in World War I. Uh, and then he becomes governor of New York and assistant secretary. And then Prescott Bush, who becomes senator. Mm-hmm. Um, they clearly were ambitious, right? And they wanted to be important people. But I, you know, you really have to believe that they're all lying about who they were in every letter, even to family and friends, to believe that they were driven only by power and money. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, the creed could have been self-serving. It's like saying a crusader used their belief in in the holiness of Jerusalem um, cynically as a as a smokescreen in order to conquer territory, kill people and acquire money. Right. I'm sure there's there's it's all messy. Um, I think we've forgotten that human beings can be motivated by multiple levels simultaneously. Uh, and the purity of motive is hard to find and, and may exist, but, but complexity of motives and motivations is also something we should honor. So, uh, the depression was the greatest existential financial crisis the United States had faced and arguably world war II was the greatest, um, military insecurity challenge. And this was a group that believed that like, you know, their community and their country was important. It was under threat of its very existence uh, and and they believed that the cold war after world war ii represented kind of an existential threat to capitalism i think they overstated that and were wrong but i also think they believed it um so i don't think they can be impugned for cynically grabbing the rise of the soviet union as an excuse mm-hmm. they actually believed they believed their own words yeah. um, again i think they were wrong but I don't think they were purposely wrong. (laughs) Let's talk about some of the lessons that you learned in your reporting and what this book might have to say about today, you know, in in your last chapter, when is enough is enough. You know, you, they talked about, you know, what you're talking about service to their country, service to the greater public. Um, What are some of the, you know, and you write too, that might be missing from some of today's, you know, wall street, Silicon Valley too. What are some of the takeaways or what, um, you know, how is it relevant to our world today? Do you think this story of Brown brothers and their attitude and how they approach um, the financial world and such and, and having this ethic about service, what are some of the lessons uh, that you would equate for today? So you're absolutely right. Um that there are lessons that I talk about. I talk about the book. I've talked about in articles. I've talked about in interviews. One lesson that's really not in the book, although I hint at it at the end, which I've talked about subsequently a lot, is, you know, the tech elite today are kind of like what the financial elite were for the last 40 years of the 20th century. And in many ways for, you know, at the time of Brown Brothers' apex of influence in 1940s and 1950s, really 1930s and 1940s, public influence. Um, political influence, not the height of their um, power monetarily, which arguably was in the 1820s and 1830s. And 
that ethos of we don't thrive unless the community thrives and uh we have to we we it is incumbent upon us to help create a system in their case a global economic system and also a national one that enriches as many people as possible and and attends to those issues in many ways if you look at the tech elite today um who are in a similar position of prominence and power they i think are largely dismissive of any role publicly in terms of public policy or shaping either because they're dismissive of politics and Washington as behind the times and the, the world that they're creating is so much more dynamic and interesting. So who cares? Or from a real sense of disconnect from the impact of these technologies on people's lives, incomes, jobs. And so you have this real backlash against tech because I think in many ways, tech elites, just like financial elites circa 2008, forgot the connection. And I think shareholder capitalism structurally is part of the problem. Um, if, if, if you believe that your only goal is to enrich your shareholders and that everything else is an externality, you're gonna pursue that and, and therefore all the problems are external as well. Brown Brothers was and is a partnership. So every deal they did involved their own personal partner capital, which meant every deal they did, they could lose money personally. Yeah. And it may not have been as extreme as, if I get this wrong, I lose my house. Yeah. There was that connection between decision making of the collective firm and personal risk. Tim Cook does a deal today, and I'm not like picking on him, I'm just using it. Tim Cook of Apple does a deal today. He could potentially augment his personal compensation by $10 million. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying he's going to do that for that reason. I'm just saying he could. It's almost impossible for him to do a deal that would personally impact him negative $10 million. Yeah. Because that would that loss would be dispersed among shareholders. And look, at some point, if Apple really blew it, right, if they made a deal that was that was going to potentially bring them down financially, I imagine the government would bail out Apple just the way it bailed out, you know, AIG in 2008. Yeah. I mean, Apple is probably too big to fail. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying no. think about it in those terms. Yeah. So you have a structural incentive that's like, look, I can take as many risks as possible, but and I don't have to worry about the effects of this on society because other people, government or whatever, will take care of it. And I think that's misguided, short-sighted, and ultimately counterproductive. Um, and it's a cultural problem, but it's also a structural problem. Uh, doesn't mean partnerships aren't avaricious, greedy, mm -hmm. narrow-minded. You know, Brown Brothers, the whole chapter of the book is about the invasion of Nicaragua in 1912, mm -hmm. partly orchestrated by Brown Brothers partners in order to guarantee their loans. Yep. Got the government to occupy the country of Nicaragua. So, you know, I'm not saying partnerships are... A, a font of, of moral rectitude and purity, even if they like to believe that, that that's what they were. But I do think structurally you create a skewed system um, and that we're not gonna go back to what we were and we shouldn't and we can't, I don't want to, back to that exclusionary thing. I like having a seat at the table, even if it's my own small table. Um, but I think we need to think about that culture of public responsibility and that we can define capitalism differently. We have one definition now. It's not like the only definition. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to be anti-capitalist to think that capitalism is in need of a different skew and a different focus. Yeah. Well, I wonder if this leads into my next question too. I wanted to ask you about the work you're doing and the Progress Network. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that is, why you started it? Maybe it, how it relates to what we're talking about here too, if, if at all. <laughs> Um, 
so I created the Progress Network, which is the progressnetwork.org. And I encourage everyone to go sign up for the newsletter. It's free. Uh, it's a it's a weekly dose of content from you know pretty prominent people that are part of this network. Right now, it's about a hundred idea people, many of whose names will be familiar. Yeah. Um, people like Fried Zakaria and David Brooks and Tom yeah. Friedman and Stephen Pinker and Emery Slaughter and Bina Ventagaram and you know go down the list. And um, you know the idea being we spend a lot of time paying attention to everything that's not working and not enough time to what is. And, and we have talked ourselves into a pretty widely shared conviction that the future is grim and getting grimmer by the moment, which may be true, but it won't be for lack of, you know, if it is true, it won't be for lack of attention to that truth. And that we need to pay more attention to what we might be doing to create a better future uh, and a little less attention to the Armageddon fantasies. Uh, and that also we have a role in shaping that future. You know, the conviction that you can do something constructive is kind of an essential ingredient to doing something constructive. And the belief that everything is going to hell in a handbasket can be pretty enervating and dispiriting and lead to a lot of short-termism. You know, if you believe that 20 years from now we're all screwed, why start a company? Why invest for the future? Why try to create a sustainable business? Instead, you're going to kind of try to get as much as you can while you can, spend it quickly, have fun, and the hell with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so the Progress Network, which is similar to some of the ethos in, in Brown Brothers, is kind of about building a sustainable future. Yeah. And that there are a lot of voices that share that sensibility but they tend to get drowned out and atomized in a in a media and and just human culture that's always going to pay more attention to the dramatic and less attention to the you know the quotidian and the mundane which which good news is usually less exciting than bad news sure well we could talk all day like i said there's so much in the book the book is called inside money brown brothers harriman and the american way of power uh zachary thank you uh, so much for joining me on this conversation today i really appreciate it thank you for having me it's been great thank you for listening and please subscribe to beyond the skyline we can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts to learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe go to our website www.finance-commerce.com i'm joel shetler editor of finance and commerce thank you again for listening to beyond the skyline